All right, today, so we're reading Romans 2, uh, verses 1 to 16. Let's read together. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself against the day, uh, sorry, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times, even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Julia. Well, good morning. Now, uh, for Beanie Sunday, I thought I'd bring out my special hiking collection beanie, um, which, as some of you may know, I, I do enjoy hiking, and often hiking in uh, high altitudes, which means that it's quite cold. Now, the key to staying warm in cold environments is layering. And so we don't just have the one beanie. This is the outer, thicker layer. But we have underneath the, uh, the medium uh, layer beanie, 100% merino, very warm. And under that, we have the 100% merino skullcap beanie, which I could leave on while I preach this morning. But that might be a little bit distracting and concerning. So I'm going to shed that one as well. What's more... It's, uh, it's way too hot for three beanies in, at the hub this morning. Um, good morning. It's uh, great to open this part of God's Word together with us this morning. Will you pray with me as we come to think upon this and, uh, and take it to heart? Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for your Word and we ask that you give us insight and understanding. We ask that you would speak to us, that you'd convict and challenge us that you'd move us to better appreciate your amazing grace to us in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, there's, uh, there's one ability that we all have and uh, that we, we actually develop from a, an early age, and that is the ability to make excuses. I mean, I think you could call it a survival skill. You know, if you're in that situation where you're confronted with something that you've done, you're concerned about the consequences of what you've done, and, and well, you, you come up with an excuse for, for why you did what you did, and you justify yourself, you explain yourself, you try to shift the blame and focus perhaps on what someone else did. Now, we could trace this ability to make excuses uh, all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden where the man and the woman ate from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. And God comes to the man and the woman and questions them and the man responds, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some and I ate it. Uh, The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What do they do? They, They try to excuse their own actions by pointing to others and shifting the blame. We make excuses. Uh, we make excuses to other people, we, to our spouse, to our parents, our children, uh, to people at work, maybe even the policeman who pulls you over and says, sir, are you aware that you're travelling at 57 in a 40 zone? What's the next thing that you say? Do we search for a, an excuse? We all make excuses and if we're honest, we're actually pretty good at it. I reckon if we could count the, the number of excuses that we make in a week, I wonder what it would be. But we don't just make excuses to others, we make excuses to ourselves. We justify to ourselves why, well, it really wasn't that bad what we did or what we said or what we thought. Really, we're actually, we're in the right. I mean, it's understandable given such and such. Things could have been worse, we might say. We actually have this this well-developed ability to to minimise our own faults and to excuse them away. And yet at the same time, we all possess another well-developed skill and that is the ability to see the faults in others. We have this this inbuilt, highly sensitised detector of other people's guilt. He shouldn't have done that. How terrible that she said that. They shouldn't do such things. They're guilty. And we can feel that passionately. It kind of makes me think of you know, the old animated movie classic, The Incredibles, with a scene where Dash's teacher, Bernie, uh, supposedly captures him on video, putting a thumbtack on the teacher's chair, although Dash is so fast that the video doesn't even really show it. And so he, he gets off, much to the, the frustration of Bernie, who screams, this little rat is guilty! He's guilty, you can see it on his smug little face. Guilty, I say, guilty, guilty, guilty. Like Bernie, we know the guilt of others and we're quick to judge them. We, we, We set ourselves up as moral arbiters. We excuse away our own faults and we spot the faults in others. Now we're working our way through the first half of this great book of Romans, this vital book of the New Testament. Uh, Someone has put it like this, that uh, if you get Romans, you get Christianity. This is what the Christian faith is about. It it really tackles the big issues of of God, of humanity, of of life, of death, of of why we're here, of of what the world is, why the world is the way it is, and, and what's our purpose, what's our goal in life. It really is a great and important book and well worth our study. 
Uh, we've seen over the last two weeks that because of people's godless, uh, godlessness and unrighteousness, uh, because people have suppressed the truth about God and, and brought in some other substitute thing to be God, because of that, people are facing God's wrath and judgment, both now as, as God gives them over into their sin and on the coming final day of His wrath. And so because of that reality, people desperately need the righteousness that's revealed in the Gospel of Jesus, where God declares us righteous because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We saw those uh, key words in chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For in the Gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. God declares us righteous through faith in Jesus. And we saw last week uh, the depths of the problem that, that needs this solution. That because of humanity's rejection of God, he, he gives them over to, to sink into the swamp of the sin that they've chosen. And we had that, that horrible list of the, the sorts of things that come as a result of, of rejecting the knowledge of God and, and being given over to a depraved mind. So 29 says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's... It's a horrible picture and it's talking about humanity as a whole. It's talking in the, the third person, they, they do this, they do that. But then in chapter 2, Paul shifts to say, you, you therefore. It's as if, as this letter is being read to the church in Rome, uh, there's some, some good and upright and moral Jewish people sitting there and Perhaps there are some good, upright, moral people hearing this today and, and they're hearing these, this description of these, these godless, unrighteous people and they think, how terrible. I mean, I know people like that. And they take this high moral ground and, and look down and say, well, they really shouldn't be doing that. You, know, you can imagine them, them writing to Paul after reading chapter 1 and saying, dear Paul, I've just read the second half of Romans chapter 1. I congratulate you on a vigorous, refreshing expose of evil. I agree with you that uh, it is disgusting what people, not only, that not only people not only behave badly, but actually approve of bad behaviour. It did me good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice these terrible things. On the contrary, I recognise them for the evils that they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I look forward to chapter 2. Yours sincerely, Self-Righteous Sam. <laughs> Paul anticipates that kind of response and he says to that person, he says to anyone who may take that high moral ground, perhaps even to us, he says... You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same 
things. We have a word for this, don't we? It's called hypocrisy. When we condemn something in others and yet we do the same things ourselves. Now, you may have heard the old saying that um, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. And you may have heard the clever reply that says, no, it's not. There's always room for more. It's a good response because, well, there actually there is a degree of hypocrisy in all of us. And that accusation is often just used as a, as a cop-out, just an excuse, really, that Christians don't actually claim to be perfect people. They just claim to be forgiven because of Jesus. And I want to say this morning that if, uh, if you're not a, a Christian because, and you're holding back from committing yourself to God because of the hypocrisy of some so-called Christians, I want to say don't let your assessment of God rest solely on the basis of the faults of his followers. Take God on his own terms. Don't let hypocritical people stop you from hearing and responding to God. I mean, that would be a tragedy. Now, having said that, we all need to watch ourselves on this charge, don't we? I mean, do we do this? Do we take a high moral ground and criticise others and yet are we blind to our own faults? Are we like those Jewish people on the sideline in Romans 2 saying, tut, tut? So, for example, if someone speaks harshly to us, they're unkind in their words and we accuse and, and judge them as being harsh, being unkind, unloving. Well, are we ourselves, even in our judgment, are we likewise being harsh and unkind and unloving? Why do we do this? Why do we make these judgments? Well, it's because our vision is limited. We, we never have the full picture of things. And we make judgments based on only having part of the picture. And even the part that we have is so, so blurred and distorted by our tendency to minimise our own faults and to, to highlight the faults of others that we, we tend to get it wrong. And so rather than face up to the truth of our own unrighteousness, we often suppress that truth and we, we make excuses to ourselves, to others and to God. And yet we think that we, at the same time that we see clearly to judge our brother or sister. Now I'm reminded of what uh, Jesus says, as we, we heard recently in our sermon uh, series on, on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see uh, clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to humble ourselves and recognise our own faults. And strangely enough, when we do deal with the plank in our own eye, it actually enables us to be able to see clearly and perhaps to help our brother with the speck in his eye. Our vision is limited and so we should be careful in our judgments. But there's one person whose vision is not limited, whose assessments are not skewed by sin and excuse-making. There is one person who judges rightly and that, of course, is God. God judges according to the truth. Now, Paul makes that point a number of times throughout uh, Romans 2. So, for example, in verse 2, 
it says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God doesn't suppress the truth or distort the truth or twist or make excuses for the truth. His judgments are right and just and true. He has the complete picture. There's no secrets from God. As verse 16 says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. God's judgment is perfectly just. And that's really the main point of verses 6 to 11. See verse 6, God says, it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now that's a general biblical principle. God doesn't act unfairly. He doesn't fabricate things. No, he judges according to justice. And then Paul goes on to spell, spell that out in verses 7. He says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God gives people what is right and fair. He doesn't treat people unfairly. He doesn't give people preferential treatment as as verse 11 concludes, for God does not show favoritism. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile doesn't make a difference before God. It's a level playing field. Now we can apply that to us. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a godless pagan or an upright moralist, whether you're European or Middle Eastern, older, younger, Muslim, Catholic, educated, illiterate, whatever divide that we might want to set up and say, well, this group, they they have a head start with God. The Bible says, no, God does not show favoritism. It's a level playing field. Now, I should make a few comments about... um, verses 6 to 11, because these verses are a little bit tricky. Um, as we read it, it, it might kind of sound like it's saying that we're, we're saved on the basis of our good works. Now, if we persist in doing good and, and seek glory, honour and immortality, then God will give us, on the basis of our achievements, eternal life. Is, is that what it's saying? I mean, at first reading, it might sound like that. But that idea goes right against the whole message of Romans and the whole Bible. For example, in 3 verse 21, it tells us that the righteousness that comes to us, sorry, that righteousness comes to us apart from the law. And in chapter 3 verse 24, it says that we are justified, that is declared righteous, freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now, the the, the clear teaching in the Bible is that the basis of our salvation is not our good works, but Christ's work, his death and resurrection for us. So then what, what's going on here in verses 6 to 11 of chapter 2? Well, I don't think this is talking about the how we are saved or, or what it is that saves us. Rather, this is talking about the rightness and fairness of God's judgment, especially in contrast to human judgment, that God judges according to the truth, that he doesn't show favoritism, and that his judgment fits the life lived by each individual. So we know that that good works are not what saves. 
Faith in Jesus is what saves. But good works go together with the faith in Jesus that saves. The the, the good works are an outward expression of it. And so if I can expand and kind of spell out what I think Paul is saying here, he's saying to the the person who, who seeks those good works as an outward expression of genuine saving faith in Christ, to that person, God will give eternal life. But to the person who is self-seeking as an outward expression of their rejection of God and unbelief in Christ, God will give to that person his wrath and anger. Our works are an outward expression of our belief or our unbelief. And God will give to each person according to, in accord with, in a way that fits with what they've done. And that fits with with Paul's main argument that God sees and judges justly according to the truth. And in that way, God is not like us. Whereas we, well, with our limited vision and our self-justifying hearts, we might set ourselves up in some kind of privileged position that says, well, you know, I'm a fairly good bloke and most people think I'm a fairly good bloke and, well, at least I'm a good bit better than that bloke over there and when I think about what he did last week, I'm not like that, I'm, I'm from a good background. I have a stable, loving Christian family. I'm well-educated. I've got the right structures in place. I'm part of a church, I've got part of a growth group and I've got good Christian friends. We can stack up all these things and Paul says, it doesn't matter. You have no excuse. You, in fact, do the same things that you condemn in others. Do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? No. You know, that list of 15 things at the end of chapter 1, the sorts of terrible things that people do in their rejection of God. You might read that as I, or hear that as I read it earlier and think, well, gee, that's, that's not me. But then if you stop and think about them kind of one by one, greed, well, do I want or hoard personal wealth? Deceit. Have I told so-called white lies or twisted the truth? slander do i criticize people to others uh, i spent a few few minutes during the week just writing out each one of those 15 things and and i pretty quickly came up with ways that i have been guilty of 10 of them and i reckon if i kept thinking about it i probably could have got to all 15 the bottom line is that that we all desperately need the wonderful grace of god that plucks us up out of the swamp of our sin with its right condemnation, the, the, the grace that, that gives us the righteousness of God in Christ, that declares us right with God, forgiven, justified, at peace with Him. We so desperately need that. And we need to be reminded that we need it. My prayer is that God would, would free us from the, the folly of puffing ourselves up and judging others, while we justify and make excuses for ourselves. I pray that we would see clearly and respond to God's patience with us. Here's a question to consider. Why does God let us continue in our sin and selfishness? I mean, why doesn't he strike us dead the first time that we reject him by telling a lie or 
doing something wrong. I mean, that would actually be just, wouldn't it? Verse 4 tells us it's because of the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience. It's because He's giving us an opportunity to repent, to turn back in humility and faith, to accept His forgiveness through Christ. We don't, know long, we don't know how long God's patience will last. We don't know how long we've got before we meet Him face to face. But when we do, which will you be? Someone who has shown contempt for God's patience, taken it for granted, brushed the call of God's, the call of God's grace aside and just lived a self-righteous, self-seeking, self-made life, perhaps even with all sorts of empty displays of religion. To that person, God says, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress as he gives them over to an existence without him forever. Or will you be someone who has been led by God's kindness to repentance, to see that, that you too need forgiveness? Will you be someone that out of out of faith in Christ, that you've lived a life seeking to do good, seeking to glorify God, someone who receives God's gift of eternal life, life with with all the richness and fullness and blessing of God that we, we can't even begin to imagine. Let me encourage you this morning not to, to make excuses to justify yourself. You don't need to. There's no point. Instead, let's see ourselves the way God sees us. Let's take hold of the salvation that God gives us and let's live to serve Him and glorify Him in all that we do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful and clear reminder from Your Word that we all so desperately need Your wonderful grace such grace that plucks us up out of the swamp of our sin. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We confess that all too often we try to justify ourselves and make excuses. Father, we, we thank you for your kindness, for your forbearance, for your patience. And we ask that you would lead us to repentance, that you would continue to lead us to repentance. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.